Welcome back to A King's Reign, the new narrative podcast series from The Athletic, detailing LeBron's life, career, and impact. I'm the host of this series, Andrew Schlecht. You know, there was a time that the entire basketball world, or at least it felt like the entire basketball world, thought LeBron James wasn't clutch. One thing that really pissed me off was when people used to always get on him about not taking the last shot. James Edwards III details that narrative and the moment when LeBron broke through to having his Jordan moment. And then Joe Barden looks at the long arc of LeBron's international basketball career from the disaster in Athens during the 2004 Olympics. I hate to say this, but it was a, it was a very dysfunctional team. To the iconic Redeem team. In 2008, our goal was not just to win the gold medal, it was to win the respect of the world and the respect of our country. I think we checked each one of those boxes. And at the end, an exclusive interview with former Team USA head coach Mike Krzyzewski, who tells some awesome stories about coaching LeBron, Kobe Bryant, and the rest of the Redeem team. First, let's get to James and that special night in Detroit in 2007, when a young LeBron went up a whole new level in his career. the moment Mike Brown met LeBron James, Brown knew that he was different. I was in awe when I kept staring at him. Like, I couldn't believe his body for such a young guy. His body body was unbelievable. I I mean, it still is. I was like, holy moly. Brown was hired as the Cavaliers' new coach in 2005. His first meeting with LeBron was at the Young Star's downtown apartment in Cleveland. i never forget, I was at his place breaking bread with him and his friends, and him and his partners got the wrestling match and took off his shirt. I was, I was even more floored. I was like, this dude is a physical specimen. Holy moly. I, I, you know, I just dreamed of having a body that way one day. I, it was a dream. It never, never came true, but <laughs> it was unbelievable. But beyond the physical gifts that LeBron possessed, it was his mental capacity that set him apart for Brown. The mental aspect covered, the, the, the feel, the intelligence aspect covered. And then quiet as kept, he's a connector. You know, having a guy that young that you're trying to mold and help become a leader, he's already ahead of the curve in that area, but that guy is your connector, the one that always wants everybody to be together. It it was a phenomenal opportunity for me, and I'm always going to be appreciative of of him and uh, the rest of the guys, as well as Dan, for having that opportunity uh, to be in such a good position as a first-time head coach. Brown knew what he had in LeBron, someone who could essentially run an NBA offense by himself just by having the ball in his hands. You know, you, you talk about magic, but I, and maybe I might be messing others, but he might be the best player to, to ever play the game that is that has the ball in his hands at the top of the floor. You know, and so you put him there. It's because they want to put that freaking ball in his hands at the top of the floor and play pick and roll and have the defense come help. And he's going to put that thing right on time, right on target, right in the bread basket. And the shot's going to be easily made by a guy that can shoot. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what we did back then. 
<laughs> you know, and I'll never, I'll never forget. Hey, he's got to do this. He's got to do that. Oh, LeBron's great. He's a great player. You know, he can do a lot of great things, but that's his strength, and that's where we want to put him at. In LeBron's first season under Brown, his scoring average jumped four points per game, up to 31.4. But there was a nagging narrative that was building around LeBron at the time. Could he do it when it mattered? You know, this used to, oof, this used to, if I had one, I had a couple, but, but one thing that really pissed me off was when people used to always get on him about not taking the last shot. I, I made the right play every time, you, you know, and I just, you know, it, it, again, that goes back to getting your team connected. Which, if you want to win at a high level, your group has to be connected. And so, part of that connectivity that the group needs to have is there has to be a trust. And if your best player, one of the best players in the world, trusts a guy that quote unquote nobody wants on their team except maybe us and a handful of other people, you know, then that trust is going to go out the roof and everybody else has to fall in line with that trust. This narrative that LeBron wasn't clutch wasn't a killer, wasn't Jordan enough, Kobe enough. It reached its peak during the final moments in Game 1 of the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals. James played by Prince. Gets it up. Marshall for three. On the backdrop, the Pistons are on it. It may be hard for young basketball fans to understand this now, but at the time, Passing to Marshall was a big deal. The Cavs were down two, 12 seconds left on the game clock. This was the moment to silence the loudest of critics. LeBron at the top of the key. Tayshaun Prince, Detroit's smartest and longest wing defender on LeBron. LeBron drives left, gets Prince on his back pocket. The defense collapses on LeBron. And LeBron, about four feet from the basket, throws a bullet pass to a wide open Marshall in the corner. The shot goes long. Rebound Detroit. Cavs lose. Remember, that was game one of the series. And as much as that shot haunted LeBron for years, he would end up having one of his finest playoff performances in his historic career just a few games later. I was going to challenge him. I wanted to see. And so I made a fact that I wanted, I'm not even a guy to pick guys up full court. But that's playing them like at the point. That is NBA champion and Pistons legend, Chauncey Billups. Billups is remembering back to the first time he played LeBron in a preseason game during LeBron's rookie season. I'm picking him up for a foul a couple of times. I just wanted to see what he had up under that hood, right? After the game, I was saying, young boy, it's going to be the real deal. He didn't, he didn't go for none of my stuff. He was, and he didn't play great, but when he's seeing his composure, his toughness, I said, oh, shit. I hope they ain't playing him at the point but all the rest of the time. Like Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons were for Michael Jordan, Billups and the Pistons were one of the major roadblocks for LeBron early in his career. Team defense made those 2000s Pistons team special and made life hell for a young LeBron. You know, Detroit was so tough because Detroit, they, they gave us fits. And they, they were such a veteran group and, and they, it seemed like they changed coverages almost every time down the floor because they were they were all communicators that just talked their defense through. 
and they may blitz LeBron one time. Next time down, they may switch, and because they're all strong, long, act, uh, active, tough, mentally tough, physically tough, you know, next time they may ice, and that, you know, uh, their ability to keep us off balance, you, you never know what you're going to get against those guys. You just hope that you can grind out an ugly win because they're going to make the game ugly, and you just hope you can do that except the key piece of the Pistons' defensive structure was gone by the time the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals came around. Center Ben Wallace, who had won Defensive Player of the Year four times in five seasons, had signed a huge contract with the Chicago Bulls in the offseason leading into the 2006-2007 season. Billups says the old defensive playbook the Pistons used against LeBron had to be altered. We guard him with a lot of people. And once he beat one guy, we had another guy ready. So it was different, but the biggest, the biggest, biggest difference was we had no Ben Wallace on our team before. So that's the glaring most biggest issue is Ben was gone. And where we could usually send him down there and Ben will be there to either take a charge or make him pass it. Couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. The Pistons took the first two games of the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals. With the series moving to Cleveland, the Cavs took games three and four including a 32-point, 9-rebound, and 9-assist performance from LeBron in Game 3. Game 5, as always in a tight series, was a massive swing game. Yes, in this series, the Pistons have not led by more than 5 points in any game, and the Cavaliers control. It was crazy because I don't really remember how he really got started went to another level at that part of the game. I didn't really remember how he got started. Going into the fourth quarter, the game was tied at 70. If anything, at that point, Game 5 was shaping up to be a rough one for LeBron. He had gone 7-for-19 from the field through the first three quarters. But what would happen in the fourth quarter and the two overtime periods that followed would begin to show basketball fans who LeBron could be in big moments. When he let loose, again, it... I just stayed out of his way. That is probably one of my best coaching jobs. <laughs> LeBron sat on the bench for the first three minutes of the fourth quarter. He entered the game with his team up one, but then the Pistons went on a run, building a seven-point lead with three minutes left. LeBron answered with the bucket at the rim. Ten unanswered for the Pistons. Change of a crossover. It counts. And the foul. What a move by LeBron James. Where he was followed by Rip Hamilton a foul shot he missed. But the Cavs rebounded, resulting in foul shots for Drew Gooden, who hit one of two free throws, the last points a non-LeBron Cav would score for the rest of the game. A three from LeBron at the 217 mark in the fourth quarter brought the Cavs within one. LeBron isoed onto Jason Maxiel, crossed him up, and dunked to then put the Cavs up one. Phillips came back the next possession to hit a three to give the Pistons a two-point lead. Now with Tayshaun Prince on him, LeBron drives right. Out of 10. James with the step. And the game is tied at 91. Phillips puts up a three. He misses it. And the game goes into overtime. A quick foul by Prince on James led the Pistons to start rethinking their strategy. I remember like after probably the 10th, 12th point in a row that I was like, all right, let's, we got to switch. Let's just switch it. Switch the matchup. Put Rip on it. Tell you it's on him. He was getting what he wanted. Boom, said, all right, put because we all guard it differently. Tell you it's more like you're gonna give you space, you're gonna use his length. Boom. 
Ripper's very scrappy. Like, he's going to grab and claw and scratch you, make you bleed and shit, you know. And uh, I said, no, Rip, you take him, you know. And so Rip took him. About 10 more points later, <laughs> I said, I got him. James has to fire. And oh, scores! Oh, my. What a shot by LeBron James off balance. He had no angle. I love my staff. I just remember, you know, when he was rolling, he had, I don't know, 14 in a row, 13 in a row. Either I call, I think Detroit called timeout. And, you know, you usually go to the free throw line to meet with the assistants to give the players a breather. And, and uh, I think it was Mike Malone. Mike Malone came to me because I think Mike had our defense in. Mike was said, hey, we need to do this defensively. And we got to tell LeBron this and this because Mike, I think Mike was my lead assistant. I said, whoa. I said, we ain't telling that about nothing. <laughs> I said, we're we, we going to stay out his way. <laughs> I specifically remember that. And so I waited an extra long time. I went back in the huddle right when it was about to end. And I was like, you got anything? <laughs> Nobody said nothing. I said, okay, well, we got LeBron. <laughs> I just went, I went to get the hell out of his way. That's what I wanted to do. And I'm more like, Get up under you, physical. You go. I'm gonna like be physical. Eight or ten points. Eight, eight points. And I'm just like, yo, we trying to trap him. We try to fight. He went to the hole a couple times. Cracked him. Got up, shook it off, made the free throws. So I'm like, yeah, I, I, we threw everything in the kitchen sink at the school, you know, and it just didn't work. This is Jordan Mass. I did not want to say anything to him. I didn't want to think I was, I didn't want anybody, I didn't want to show anybody that I was coaching by trying to draw some shit up that wasn't going to work. <laughs> you know, I swear, whatever you're doing, LeBron, you keep doing it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's what I was, I was on the coattails. Pringles covers with Phillips on James, working it down, five seconds, four, three, James scores with 2.2 to go. When the horn sounded at the end of the game, LeBron immediately bent over, his hands on his knees, completely exhausted by the performance. We got the win. I'm, I'm definitely exhausted, but I'm going to take the whole day tomorrow to, to get some rest, man. And um, you know, This is a great performance by our team, and it's, it wouldn't be possible if we didn't come out here and play hard as we did. In that Game 5 victory for the Cavs, LeBron scored 48 points, including the team's last 25. Every single question critics, analysts, and skeptical fans had about LeBron were answered in that Game 5 performance. It was a night displayed by Kobe, Magic, Bird, and of course Jordan, many times in their career. Brown, when asked if this was LeBron's Jordan moment, agreed. The stage that was on, plus how good that team, the, the Detroit team was. You know, they had veterans that were... All of them probably going to be in the Hall of Fame, you know, and then they had a Hall of Fame coach, and that team was good. And we had a lot of respect for them, as well as the rest of the league had a lot of respect for them. So I, from, if you factor all those things in of who we're playing against, the stage, and it was at their place, yeah. Phillips believes that game was a personal turning point for LeBron himself. But I really do believe that that was the night that LeBron proved to himself that he could be the best player in the world. I really believe that that was the night. And it was because, not because he had the points, but because he did it on us, because of how he viewed us. I think that that was the night that he said, I'm, I, I can be the best. Man. I can just be the best ever. The series went back to Cleveland, where the Cavs wrote a 31-point performance from Booby Gibson, 
to move on to the NBA Finals in a matchup against the dynastic San Antonio Spurs. Besides the fact that this was LeBron's first NBA Finals and he got there so young, there isn't much to talk about from that series. The Spurs swept the Cavaliers. LeBron did not have a particularly good finals, shooting 36% from the field across the entire series. But as Brown sees it, there was such a large talent gap between the teams. It's impressive LeBron was able to even get that team to the finals at all. If you think about our teams, we never had three all-stars in their prime. Uh, I did a, I did a, a study, you know, because a lot of times people say, oh, you won because LeBron, you won because LeBron. And I'm like, it's great to have LeBron, but you're not going to win if it's just because LeBron. And and uh, it's harder than what you think, you know. And, and, you know, his first championship in Miami, if you add up uh, the number of NBA All-Star years that he he, I think he had the most NBA All-Star years on his team when, when he won it. It was 54 or something, whatever it was. And I think when we were in the finals, we had four, I think. Z was one and LeBron was two. And then maybe Larry might have been one, you know. And that makes a big difference. And not only that, when you have all those All-Stars, then you have a guy like Shane Battier who won a gold medal with an all-star. You had uh, uh, Mike Miller who was a gold medalist. You know, you got Udonis Hathaway. Like, you have some good, smart veteran players on top of the six, seven, eight all-stars you have on your team. And, you know, then again, when he won at Cleveland, he had, it was him and Kevin and, and Kyrie in their prime. And, um, you know, we never had that. And uh, that's gonna make that's gonna make a hard, you know. If, if you don't have that, can it be done? I'm sure many things possible, but it's gonna be hard as the Dickens if 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 your team's not right. And you know, it's easy. All you do is go back and look at the NBA champions. You look who's on their roster. And you'll you'll see. You you, you got to have a load on there. LeBron had made it to the finals at just 22 years old. He wouldn't go back until he was 26. Not as a Cleveland Cavalier but as a member of the Miami Heat. Discovered the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Before you dive back in, we want to let you know that you can unlock tomorrow's episode today and enjoy this entire series ad-free with a subscription to The Athletic Audio Plus. Unlock that now for just 99 cents a month by clicking subscribe at the top of The Athletic NBA Show's show page on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of A King's Reign. Thanks for joining us here on A King's Reign. Coming up now is Joe Varden on the fall and redemption of Team USA.
and an interview with one of the central figures in that redemption, Coach Mike Krzyzewski. Knowing uh, LeBron, I got to know him a little bit through the Nike stuff, uh, playing against him. This is Jason Kidd, now coach of the Dallas Mavericks and one of the greatest to ever play basketball. Team USA is when I really got to know him and just to understand uh, who he is and how he ticks. This uh, incredible young man uh, who wanted to be great. For two summers, Kidd was a first-hand witness to another charm chapter of LeBron James' storied career with USA Basketball. Kidd and LeBron were members of the Redeem team, which captured gold at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. But to have a name like that, Redeem team, is to suggest something needed redeeming. And Team USA, you know, at the time, we struggled. Um, we, we didn't, we weren't dominant. Um, the world had gotten better. Today, LeBron is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and among the all-time statistical leaders for USA Basketball, an organization that has won the last four Olympic gold medals. But LeBron's career with Team USA was born out of a dark, troubled, an embarrassing time for the American national program, that is, the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece. 04, of course, was the uh, Olympics in Greece. The, at that time, committees still selected players. I was not a part of that committee within the NBA, but they selected who they did. This is Jerry Colangelo, the former longtime managing director for Team USA, who pieced together the Redeem team. Because of some tensions in the, in the world, you know, security and or other reasons, you know, some of the interest in representing your country had weaned at that moment. So at the last second, they had to replace four players. And the NBA, in its interest in promoting future, future stars, picked four young guys who hadn't really earned a right to be on the Olympic team. They hadn't been around long enough, really, when you think about it. But LeBron, Carmelo, and Wade, and Amari Stoudemire were added to the roster. Complicating the issue was that Larry Brown was the head coach. Popovich was one of the assistants. They were discombobbled anyway. The Americans had not lost a game at the Olympics since the start of the 1992 Games and the advent of the Dream Team. Led by Michael Jordan, Team USA destroyed its competition in Barcelona in 92 and did the same in 96 with Charles Barkley, Akeem Olajuwon, and Shaquille O'Neal. And then 2000, you know, was the uh, Olympics in Sydney, where really for the first time you saw teams start to close the gap on the U.S. This is Craig Miller, the longtime public information officer for USA Basketball, who held the role from 1990 through the Tokyo Olympics, covering every star from Michael to Shaq to LeBron and Kobe to Kevin Durant. You know, there were still the name players that everybody wanted to see. You know, you had Vince Carter and Garnett and, and those guys, Ray Allen playing now, and they were they were the top players at the time. But I think we beat France by 10 points in a gold medal game. We had another close game. You know, that was a game where Lithuania missed a three at the buzzer that would have beat us in, I think, the semifinals. People tend to forget that, you know, the 40-point wins weren't happening anymore. They were getting closer and closer. 
The 2004 Olympics in Athens were the first summer game since the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S., and security was a top concern for officials in Greece. I have to assure you that we have taken all the necessary measures. Olympic security remains our first, our, our first priority, our top priority, and we can uh, assure that nothing will disturb uh, this schedule towards the Olympic Games. There were also injuries to consider, and in Kobe Bryant's case, a summer date in a trial court. Bryant didn't go to the Olympics, nor did Shaq, Jason Kidd, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, or Ray Allen. Representing the U.S. that summer, at least as far as headliners go, was Allen Iverson and Tim Duncan. Richard Jefferson and Sean Marion were on that team. Stefan Marbury, Lamar Odom, and yes, LeBron, Carmelo Anthony, and Dwayne Wade. We ended up adding Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron James, and they had just finished their first year in the NBA. And I think they were all about 18 or 19 years old. So we went from traditionally being an older, more established, mature team to very young team. I think to further complicate issues, uh, the coach was Larry Brown. And, you know, Larry Brown's history of not necessarily liking younger guys, it all played into the U.S. winning a bronze medal. And truthfully, we were fortunate to win a bronze medal. In an ideal world, the younger generation of LeBron, Wade, and Carmelo would learn from the older generation of Iverson and Duncan. In reality, though, it didn't work out that way. I hate to say this, but it was a, it was a very dysfunctional team. They just never seemed to gel, and I could, it, com it comes from a lot of things. It comes from, uh, I think you had young guns, you had old guns. You know, you had Larry, who was coached the way Larry coached. You know, he's known, for, right, you know probably as well as I do for long practices. We had long practices that didn't, didn't go well with the players, generally. Miller says there were clear signs of issues developing between the players and their coach before Team USA had even left U.S. soil. There was a game in Jacksonville, our first exhibition game, and oddly enough, we played Puerto Rico. And I think we beat Puerto Rico by 30 points, ultimately. But he benched Allen Iverson, Mari Stoudemire, and LeBron James because they were late to a meeting, pregame meeting by a couple minutes. I remember that kind of soured everything because you have all these fans that wanted to come see these you know, younger players, and now they weren't playing at all. He, I mean, he just didn't play them at all. So I think that that started to disconnect. About two weeks later, in Athens, Greece, Puerto Rico ended up shocking Team USA, winning by 19 points to open pool play. The roster of mostly non-NBA players, led by then-Utah Jazz guard Carlos Arroyo, handed the Americans their first Olympic loss since the 1988 semifinals. It was also the worst loss in terms of point differential in American Olympic history. Team USA lost again a few games later to Lithuania, but was able to claw into the knockout stage anyway. The Americans were beaten by Argentina in the semifinals, relegating them to a bronze medal rematch with the Lithuanians, a game Team USA would win. Throughout the entire tournament, the playing time of the young Americans fluctuated. Out of the three guys, D. Wade was the guy who I remember played the most, and I think it was Carmelo for a while, but then Carmelo kind of voiced, I think, his opinion that he should be playing more, and then he played less. LeBron was kind of in the, LeBron didn't do anything publicly like that, but he wasn't he wasn't playing a lot. The thing I do remember about LeBron from them was how much more he would practice after practice. 
I mean, again, these practices were going long and he would stay and get shots up and work hard and that maybe a lot of other guys were done and ready to go home, you know. LeBron averaged 11 minutes per game in Greece. In the semifinals lost to Argentina, he played just three minutes. In the bronze medal game, seven. James was unimpressed by the entire experience. As he stood on the podium with bronze around his neck, he thought it was all a waste of time. He declared he was done with Team USA. The Athens disaster was the end of an era with USA basketball, and decision makers were ready for a new one to begin, quickly. People here in the States were kind of disenchanted, in fact, quite a bit. It was embarrassing, not only the losses, but supposedly attitudes. Colangelo says NBA Commissioner David Stern called him soon after the 2004 Olympics to fix Team USA. It was a challenge the four-time NBA Executive of the Year was ready to accept, but on his own terms. David calls me, David Stern, he says, you know, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, um, would you take over USA Basketball? And I, I didn't hesitate because I'm not that way. I said, sure, I'll do it. But I have two conditions. He said, what are they? I said, number one, full autonomy. I'll pick the coaches and I'll pick the players. He said, that's done. What's number two? I said, I don't want to hear about a budget. He didn't like that. So he went off on that one and I said, are you finished? Yes. I said, well, it's still number two. Don't worry about it. I'll raise the money. You know, I felt confident I could raise the support, which it would take, because you want to do things the right way. Colangelo picked Mike Krzyzewski, already a legend and national champion at Duke, as his coach at Team USA. Coach K had played and coached at West Point, so directing the U.S. national team meant something more to him. He'd won three national titles at Duke and was deeply respected throughout the NBA. Together, Colangelo and Coach K were going to ask the next group of 12 USA players for a three-year commitment, which was a huge departure from the way it had been done dating to the 92 Dream Team. The plan was I would meet with each player eyeball to eyeball and just talk to them about why I was doing it and what I would expect from anyone who would be part of it. And anyone who didn't agree to do all the things, then they're out. They were out. I would find 12 players who were going to commit. We had to change a culture. We had to bring back some pride in representing your country. And, you know, at that moment, I th the opportunity was there. LeBron had a year and a half to cool off from his hard feelings from 2004. James had the summer of 05 to himself after the Cavs missed the playoffs for the second consecutive year. And by the middle of the 2005-06 NBA season, he had made up his mind that he was returning to Team USA for the long haul. Where it was a good place to be with people coming through Chicago, playing in Chicago. And so I just camped out at the hotel. And as far as LeBron is concerned, he was at the uh, Ritz-Carlton across the street from where I was. And uh, we made an appointment to meet at 9 o'clock on, um, on a certain level of the hotel and you know I was there about 8 30 having a cup of coffee just waiting looking at the elevators and exactly at nine o'clock the elevator door opens and out walks LeBron and now I'm talking about being prompt we sat and we talked and I was no more than halfway through my I don't want to say pitch it wasn't a pitch I just basically had to I wanted them to know if they didn't know who I was and my background, they needed to know that. 
and why I chose to do it, you know, take on the responsibility. And I talked about how much basketball meant to me in my life. I felt totally indebted. I was very proud to be an American and I was very upset about how people were looking at us as Americans around the world. And in particular, how they were looking at our, the basketball people in our country. It was tarnished at that moment, you know, the image. And I said, we're going to change it. And if you want to be a part of it, here's what you need to do. And if you can't do any of these, all of these things, then I'll find somebody else. LeBron, halfway through it, LeBron says, look, I'm in. I'm in. That was the first time I had met him. That was the beginning of a long relationship. LeBron and Team USA were headed for the FIBA World Championships in Japan in the summer of 2006. Among the others to take that meeting with Jerry Colangelo and say yes were Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Carmelo Anthony, and Chris Paul. Those NBA greats will forever be linked to LeBron for one reason or another. Wade, Anthony, and Paul have long been considered James' best friends in basketball. We all remember the banana boat picture of the four of them vacationing at some exotic location, and all of them except Anthony posing on a ridiculous banana-shaped raft. Of course, Wade, LeBron, and Bosch would end up joining forces on the Miami Heat in the summer of 2010. Colangelo says the seeds of that decision were planted during the players' time with Team USA as early as 2006. I did, but it, it happened in 06 when we were in Japan when the guys were kind of talking among themselves, you know, in like the dining room or places where we would go in and get some food and everyone's sitting around, not all the time, but certainly Coach K and I were aware these guys were talking about <laughs> stuff like that, about teaming up and playing together. It was Wade, it was Bosch, it was LeBron. I don't know if Carmelo was part of, you know, the conversation that particular day or a certain situation. I don't know. I don't remember that. But that's where the, the concept, the idea of potentially playing together, teaming up, guys are starting to talk about it. I don't know if they ever did before, but they certainly were talking about it in 06. Redemption would not come for the Americans in any sense in 2006. Team USA lost in the FIBA semifinals to Greece, a country with no NBA players on its roster, by six points. LeBron had to settle for another bronze, and now the Americans would need to qualify for the Olympics in 2007. That's when Jason Kidd rejoined the fray. You know, not being able to participate in 04 with the microfracture and us not doing well, um, you know, uh, I've always enjoyed playing for Team USA uh, to represent your country, but also to play with the best players in the world. And so to have uh, when Jerry called and asked would I participate, um, I was not going to say no one says no to Jerry uh, Colangelo. And so uh, to have uh, that opportunity and with uh, the group that they talked about having, um, you know, I, 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 I was uh, anxious but also excited to have that opportunity to be able to, you know, regain that dominance and be able to have that opportunity to win a gold medal. Um, I couldn't turn down. Kidd wasn't the only superstar veteran to sign up for Team USA. Colangelo lured Kobe Bryant into the fold for the next two summers, beginning with the FIBA Americas Tournament in 2007. 
for our whole program, for each individual player, it was a matter of growth. It was a matter of experience. It was a matter of people coming together. And he was right in the middle of, in the heart of it. And he has a, his personality, a strong personality, where he's not a follower. You know, people follow him. He was uh, certainly a big time leader. But I will say this, when Kobe joined us, this, this was his first time in, in USA basketball. When, uh, when Kobe joined us and uh, we came to uh, Las Vegas for camp, and Kobe, you know, was doing the things like you know, five o'clock in the morning. LeBron took note of some of the things Kobe did, and he followed suit there. He did. He did. Kobe had a, an impact on him at that time and moment. By this point, LeBron had been a part of Team USA for three years, dating to the 2004 disaster in Greece. He had not been the Americans' leading scorer. That was Carmelo Anthony. But he had the ball in his hands the most and was an engaged, intense defender in international play. James had also emerged as a dominant force in the NBA, dragging an undermanned Cavaliers team to its first ever finals in 2007. But the league did not yet belong to him, because Bryant was still very much in his prime. LeBron has always been a better teammate than Kobe, but only in a place like Team USA could someone of James' stature even consider having to demur to a newcomer. I don't think it was anyone's team. It was, uh, this was about how do we, uh, better the atmosphere of bringing USA back to, uh, that gold, that gold standard. And so I don't think it was, it was LeBron's team. I don't think it was Kobe's team. Um, I thought Coach K, uh, said it best and I'm gonna tr hopefully get it right that it, he needed everyone's ego in that room to come every day but can we put them where everyone is connected and being a team and not a one-man band if it's Kobe's team if it's LeBron's team and I thought that message was uh, was heard loud and clear and and I thought uh, the practices were were intense uh, and fun but uh, at the same time we knew that it would only make the game against our opponent easier when we took the floor and it, it was a close-knit team and it was a fun team and so um, it wasn't LeBron's team it wasn't D-Wade's team it wasn't the team that had lost um, I, I think that was another thing um, no one talked about this is the team that lost and so will they lose again this this was kind of a fresh start uh, with some older faces uh, on the team but I thought it was really, it was really well ran by Colangelo and Coach K and received by the players at a high level. LeBron and Kobe seemed to bring out the best in each other. LeBron finally got to see, firsthand, what it truly meant to be maniacal. He witnessed Bryant getting full lifts in hotel gyms before the sun rose and then headed into practice. James copied him. Bryant, meanwhile, had been too serious for too long. His personal life and the strife on the Lakers made him something of a pariah at the time, at least to people outside of Team USA. LeBron showed Kobe it was okay to laugh. He got to peek under the hood of great players, uh, Kobe, uh, Melo. He got to see how guys worked. Uh, he got to see uh, what they were like off the floor. Um, and so, you know, seeing D. Will... Um, and Chris Paul having the conversations, basketball conversations, who's the, who is the better point guard at that time? 
who's better, Kobe or LeBron. I mean, these are all conversations that we had, but it was just, uh, it, it was just, you know, for him to be able to see how his opponent uh, worked and was there something that he could borrow to make himself better. At one practice, you would be like, well, like LeBron's unstoppable. Uh, the next practice is easy to say Kobe. <laughs> so I think uh, we could have been a little bit indecisive because it just changed. And it was just, you know, it was incredible to see these two players dominate and show their, their brilliance, but also remember that it wasn't just about them they're about the team and uh, and that's what I thought really helped us be successful LeBron was also building a relationship with one of the greatest Olympians ever swimming legend Michael Phelps whom Miller says was a constant presence inside the Team USA locker room 2008 you know Kobe loved to go to soccer matches and LeBron was going to the village frequently but he and Michael Phelps became very good friends and I remember I think after we won the gold medal Phelps came to the locker room and just sat down with the team and they were all kidding him about his performance and how much he had done and they were kidding about drug testing because I think LeBron got drug tested and and uh you know Michael Phelps was was uh, commenting that that's pretty common for him almost every race to me, it was um, kind of a unique friendship, if you will, um, coming from you know LeBron's world and Michael Phelps' world to, to meshing together like that, where they went and supported each other and, and naturally seemed to have developed a friendship by the end of the Olympics. The 2008 Summer Games in Beijing reasserted the United States' dominance in men's basketball. With Brian as team captain, LeBron as the emotional leader, and in somewhat of a surprise, Dwayne Wade returning from shoulder surgery to lead the Americans in scoring. The only real challenge Team USA faced at the Olympics was in the gold medal game against Spain, in which they wound up winning by 11. The Americans were firmly back on top of the international game, and they have won every Olympic gold in men's basketball since. LeBron was growing as a person and as a player. He was a young player at that time. I don't know if I've said this to you before, but this is how I felt when uh, when we won it, you know, in the moment. It was a, quite a moment. The Star Spangled Banner is being played, the flag is being raised, the medals are being hung around necks, and what's going through my mind at the moment was very few people have the opportunity to have a have an opportunity. Period. Number two, to um, have a game plan see it executed and get the desired result it's like everything happened all in that moment and yeah uh, we didn't call ourselves the redeemed team we were named the redeemed team very appropriately lebron averaged 15 and a half points in the 2008 olympics with 5.3 rebounds and 3.8 assists in a team high 24.8 minutes per game it would be the first of his two gold medals a savory slice of redemption from where he was with Team USA just four summers prior. The friendships LeBron made with Team USA changed the course of his career, as did his partnership with Kobe. LeBron, the NBA's all-time leading scorer now, changed basketball by joining Wade and Bosch on South Beach, by showing players they had far more power than they thought in manipulating how teams were built. He is also one of the best Team USA players ever.
spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out. Birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids. And honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys. And Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, or marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Joining me now is someone who needs no introduction, but it's certainly my pleasure to give him one. Talking about former Duke head basketball coach and Team USA coach with three gold medals to his name, Mike Krzyzewski. Coach, before you took over, LeBron had a pretty bad experience with Team USA. And when he came home from the 2004 games in Athens, he said, I'm done with this. And obviously he changed his mind. What is your memory of him coming onto the team? And were you surprised that he decided to go with it and stick with you guys for as long as, as he did? No, I wasn't surprised that he, he uh, was on the team. Uh, LeBron's a competitor, Carmelo, Dwayne Wade. Those guys, uh, they, they wanted to win a gold. Uh, and uh, they weren't going to let the criticism that occurs in, in our society and especially in sport stop them from doing that. But, uh, no, I was not surprised. And uh, uh, in 2006, we had just taken over, and we had not yet developed a culture yet for USA basketball and an understanding of our competition. And when we lost in 2006 in Tokyo to the European champions, the Greek team, uh, uh, we made a lot of changes uh, based on what we learned from that. The, the, the great thing about that group that lost was that the key guys were still committed to play. And they exhibited what I, I think an amazing trait for a team, and that's collective responsibility. In other words, we win and we lose together. And when we lost, there was no finger pointing. You know, it was because of this, no excuse making and whatever. And uh, we had to qualify again in 20, uh, 2007. But by that time, we had a plan, uh, Jerry Colangelo and I, uh, we thought we needed a few veteran players, older players. And uh, so we recruited Kobe, Jason Kidd, and Chauncey and uh, Billups. And I remember uh, before we started camp flying up to Akron to meet with LeBron and uh, his group. And, uh, and I asked him about 
how do you how are you going to feel because he's yeah he's a central figure in what we're going to do he yeah and in asking him things uh you're you're creating ownership for a player and he said no coach that'd be great you know jay kidd's the best passer in the nba i'm good uh i can learn from him chauncey's a great leader kobe's uh most people say he's the best preparer in the world and uh i can learn and interesting when we qualified in 2007 every meeting LeBron sat right next to Jason Kidd every meeting. Yeah. And most nights, uh, our guys work, you know, and people don't realize how much time they put in. Most nights, LeBron and Jay Kidd would go shoot together. And uh, so LeBron is, LeBron is brilliant. He's not smart. He's brilliant and he's wise. And uh, it's okay for other people to be good with him. And, uh, and he, 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 he's a great observer, you know, of the game of people. Yeah. I love, uh, coaching him. We're great friends. And, uh, it had the relationship that he developed with Kobe was really the foundation of, uh, our Olympic culture for 2008 and again in 2012. LeBron, of course, is now the NBA's all-time leading scorer. But he was not your leading scorer on Team USA. What was his role with you? What was it that you envisioned for him? How did he fit into it and and make it his own? You also had guys like Kobe and Melo and and D. Wade and, and all these other guys who could score. And so how did you fit this whole puzzle together? Yeah, you know, uh, they develop their own roles as long as you don't put them in a box. Uh, you put them in a box by calling them a one, two, three, or four, or five. So really in the early eight, late 80s and early 90s, I stopped doing that with my own teams. And so it was easy for me. I, it, you know, you, what you want to do is have your best players on the court in the last quarter of that game. Uh, and, uh, they could not, they couldn't be in a position and, uh, our two best players were, uh, LeBron and Kobe. However, uh, Carmelo was really one of the outstanding force in the history of international basketball and Dwayne, uh, Wade, uh, uh, said he would come off the bench, uh, but in the end of the game, he didn't come off. He didn't stay on the bench. And uh, and Dwayne actually was our, our leading scorer. And basically, it was very equal. I think we had maybe five double-digit or close to double-digit scorers. And uh, they, they were so good about it. It wasn't important that that player scored. It was important that we scored. We became a uh, a team of plural pronouns, where I, me, you, are were never used. It was us, ours, we, and that's just how they played the game. And when you talent is one thing, but talent, intelligence, 
and attitude put together creates something very special. And so these guys and LeBron and Kobe were the leaders in this. Uh, they were very unselfish. They just wanted to win. Uh, yeah, they're all had great attitudes and, uh, uh, they were, it was beautiful to watch. Yeah. It, it was just, and the coach was, was, uh, wow. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a lucky guy, a lucky guy. And doing the reporting for this project, we've had some conversations with other people about the LeBron and Kobe relationship. I'm curious from your perspective, how did LeBron and Kobe affect each other? How did they work together and, and, and how they played off one another? Yeah, I, you know, like, one, they're, they're, they just are good guys, you know, like, and they know how to goof on one another. They, they get it. They don't just get basketball. They, they get it. And LeBron has an amazing sense of humor and he's an entertainer. And, uh, the, the humor that was used and sometimes LeBron mimicking, uh, Kobe or they're all stretching and saying something or saying in the mamba, you know, or, you know, and all, and it, uh, if there was any ice to break, it was broken easy, you know, uh, uh, through humor and communication. These guys are communicators. And uh, some of the interviews the two of them did together will be, are legendary. Are pe- stars don't do that, it, you know, as well. It, it was so genuine. And... Uh, Literally, they, they were not jealous of one another. They were, it was kind of like uh, the great piano player playing. All of a sudden, there's the sax, the greatest sax player playing. You know, they they knew that their talents were going to be taken to a higher level playing with one another. And I call it talent makes talent better. Uh they made each other, they, all those guys made each other better. Uh, and only talent can get you past certain levels uh, in the, uh, in, in the uh, development of your potential. And uh, 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 it, it, it makes you feel something, not just see it. Like, oh, how did he see that? How did he... Man, that was good. I get chills thinking about it because I, I actually was there and uh, saw those guys inter- interact. There was never any problems. They, they, and, and and in LeBron's case, you know, from '04 and '06, everyone was calling him not everyone, but a lot LeBron's, and he's still a young guy. And so uh, he didn't pay attention to that, or maybe he did, and said, you know, forget about you guys. I'm going to win a goal. And by the way, I won another one. And by the way, I won a few championships. And, you know, in order to win, you also lose. The champions turned losing into championships. And, you know, he did that. Now I want to ask you about another of your sayings. Forgive me if I don't get it exactly correct, 
but and there there are a few variations of it now throughout the league. One of them is coaches say you bring your swag, and then other times, and I think this is more quoting you directly, they say bring your ego. I believe that was the quote. Bring your ego. I'd love to know where you learned that one and why you thought bring your ego was the right message to deliver to the redeem team. Yeah, it's actually the first uh, team meeting with with the new all the new guys, you know, the team that was going to win. And I have always hated the expression, leave your egos at the door. I I never understood why you would want to be somebody else when you come in my room. The reason I invited you in my room was because of who you are. And so uh, that night it was mentioned, leave your egos at the door. And I said, Look, I want you to bring your egos in. You know, Kobe, LeBron, all you guys. You know, all I know is the Gasols from Spain and Ginobili and that. They're not leaving their damn egos uh, at the door. But what I would like for you to do, and we all, you know, we're in our U.S. stuff, I would like for you uh, to put all your egos under one ego umbrella. And it'll be a USA ego. Yeah, again, I get chills thinking about it because it like imagine how big that i didn't use i used some other words that that umbrella would be and you know what it'll beat everybody you know it'll be everybody if we're who we are and and uh i all i believe in that 100 percent this is a non-LeBron question, but I have to ask because, I, I mean, there's, there isn't anything that you haven't seen in your career. But I wonder what your initial reaction was when you're playing Spain and you know Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol are teammates in the NBA and Kobe runs through Pau. Yeah, well, I just laughed. Uh, yeah, and like, Pau is one of my favorite players of all time. and. One of the great gentlemen, one of the great players and gentlemen. And they were brothers on the Lakers. And it, it was Kobe being Kobe. Kobe showing everybody. First of all, he told the guys he was going to do that. And that he was going to do something. Then when he, we did it, it was his way of telling his teammates, look, I'm not a Laker. Uh, uh, he's my brother on the Lakers and I love him, but he, yeah, he's, he's going to take our gold medal away and that's not going to happen. Yeah. Amazing. It was, uh, yeah. You're talking about two of the amazing, unique competitors in all of sport and Kobe and LeBron in all of sport, not just basketball. Okay. Coach, do you have, either a, a singular memory or favorite memory or, or, or the one moment that stands out for you when you think about coaching LeBron? I love the relationship we developed. So in 2012 in London, he was the best player in the world, but that was the strike shortened season and the Olympics were early and they were fried fried and so when i talked to lebron i said before every practice 
I want to show you what I'm planning. And I want you to give me your opinion. You know, and he did that. And there were, yeah, one of the, one time I showed him practice in London. And I, he said, what do you, I said, what do you think? And he, he used that great smile and his eyes go like, and I, so I know I'm going to get something good here. And, uh, and he says, we should have a spa day. And I said, spa day. He said, no, coach, we're not going to a spa. This would be a good day for all of us. We're in this gym. We have weights and whatever. Let us all do our own training today. I think it'd be a good, like, and that's what we did. You know, and, uh, uh, we, you know, it's interesting for me. Actually, this morning I was looking on Twitter and, uh, he and, uh, he, he's out on the West Coast and he's coaching in his son's AAU team. <laughs> Ward and that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very, we're good friends. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I think the world of him and, and he's really, really smart. He, he's really smart. Yeah, I mean, LeBron is, he's so perceptive and he's so smart, you know, in, in these NBA locker rooms, LeBron is seated in front of his locker and he's watching and he's looking to see who comes in and who's going out and who they're talking to and, and what they're saying. He, that's how he learns who these people are and, and why they're there and, and what they're all about. You know, in saying that, 2006, we were very young and... Whenever, wherever we stayed, there was like a, not a game room, but a place where they could play cards and whatever and pool, whatever. And, uh, when they would play cards and it's not like they're going nuts or anything. I watched them a couple of times and I said, you know, he knows what everybody's doing. He, that's where I started to know how smart he was. And, uh, and, and he's got good, uh, give and take, you know, really, uh, really good give and take. I, he, yeah, for me, he was really enjoyable because he, he, he gave you, he gave me who he was all the time on and off the court. There's no BS, uh, yeah, very I thought very transparent and uh, I, I, I knew where he was at all the time. Uh, uh, no, no mind games, no, no BS. We asked Jerry Colangelo about this as well, but in, in Tokyo, that was the early relationship building that resulted in Bosch and Wade and LeBron all teaming up in Miami. What do you remember about that going all the way back to 06 in Tokyo? Uh, seeing them get together and 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 I guess plant those seeds. Well, I th- I think when we first got there, first of all, they're real young, and you know, trust. You don't you don't buy an app and get trust. Uh, it takes time uh, to develop trust and communication and whatever. So that's where you know the thing in Tokyo and that that trip and whatever. Although we lost, 
we learn so much about one another. And that's where that collective response at the end, we trusted each other enough not to blame anybody. And, and so uh, Jerry in USA Basketball and Nike and everybody uh, really developed a, an atmosphere where you weren't just separate, you were separated, you were together. And so you got to know each other. And by, by the time, uh, you know, Beijing came along, you know, families were together and the eating, you know, the, and where you ate together, you got to know, you know, the wives and children of, 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 of it's more like college used to be when you had guys for four years. <laughs> uh, not that they had kids, but you got to know them. And so going through that, I think the single biggest thing that was developed was trust. There's so much pressure on the Redeem team, so many expectations, you know, to put USA Basketball back on top. With all that being said, I'm curious what you thought your biggest challenge was coaching that team. Yeah, I don't know if that's biggest challenge. I, I think the word challenge, it, it can be overused. It's just what you do. Yeah, like, okay, you're the head coach of your country's team. You know, is there pressure? There's, of course, there's a lot of pressure. Is there opportunity? There's a great deal of opportunity. Would you trade it for anything? No, you wouldn't trade it for anything. And, and, uh, but it's a different game. And that's what happened from 06 to 08. We learned instead of being arrogant and saying, boy, they should play it this way. They should do it this way. No, no. Your game is beautiful. You guys are really good. You have great coaches, great players. We need to learn how it's administered. You know, we need, to get accustomed to the ball. We need to get, we need to learn that game. And so we brought international officials in. Uh, actually, a guy who helped us a lot was Jay Triano, uh, who um, and he ended up being, I think, the only non American coach on a US staff in 2010 because D'Antoni had a back problem. And I, I said, would you come with us? And so we were, we absorbed information. We, we hired international scouts where before you would see an international player stats and boy, averages 12 points and six rebounds. So the guy can't be that good. Well, yeah, he is that good. You know, and you watch tape and whatever, you know, like, not that you didn't watch tape, but you didn't see them personally, studied them. And uh, we invested. And, uh, and you know what I, I call it? We, we proved ourselves deserving of winning. And, and, and you ha in order to win, you have to deserve to win. You don't always win when you deserve to win because the other guy can also be deserving of winning. And we learned that and, and that culture that developed, I thought Pop did an amazing job because he didn't have the amount of time, uh, you know, and, uh, and 
for the world championships, he didn't get the as many of the older guys that he needed to get. But uh, boy, they played defense in that gold medal game, and and so <clears throat> Steve being a part of that, I, I think will really really help him. Obviously, they have an outstanding staff. And then, of course, recently Netflix released the Redeem Team documentary. And I want to know what it was like for you to watch that and, and to relive some of those memories. No, it was spectacular for me and for me to be able to do it and with my 10 grandkids in our home theater. And a, uh, a number of them were there, like eight of them, seven or eight of them, I can't, because uh, we would take our grandchildren and uh, to relive that. I mean, those were you're reliving something that only a few people, a few, t few players have a chance, have had a chance to do, you know? And so it's incredibly exciting and, and it reaffirms the things we've already talked about. Like you saw it, you not only heard it, you saw it, you saw the interaction, you saw, you saw it. And it made you proud. It made you proud, and uh, I've had I, a few people, uh, people that I know, watched it on July Fourth, and, and uh, they said, "I know you said it was going to be really good, but watching on July Fourth was pretty damn good." <laughs> I should and I. When they said it was afterwards, when they said, I said, you are really a knucklehead. That we should have watched it again. Because uh, uh, it's not, never going to get old. And then, Coach, I guess one parting shot here. When you think about the totality of the entire experience coaching the Redeem team and the, the years-long run-up to it, how do you summarize it? What is the thing that you say you accomplished maybe beyond winning gold? I think one of the main things overall uh it the dream team in 92 set up an explosion for basketball although throughout the world you know but in 2008 uh in 2008 uh our goal was not just to win the gold medal it was to win the respect of the world and the respect of our country i think we checked each one of those boxes and and I think it it was good for basketball, and it helped the NBA, it helped college, and it helped all of our youth programs uh, to where we had uh, more of a a love play for the, for an understanding of why we were playing and the respect of the people we were playing against. And uh, and now a, a quarter of the, the NBA is international. Uh, so we really have a lot of respect for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, Coach, I, I can't thank you enough for your time and, and taking us down memory lane. Uh, it's a trip I could drive all day long. Uh, once again, folks, the, the one and only uh, Coach Mike Krzyzewski talking LeBron and Redeem Team. 
Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode, LeBron's arrival in Miami and the impact it had on the city. When the group of people who had been profoundly indifferent got around the shiny thing that everyone envied uh, because we do big sparkly things well. We don't do a lot of losing well. We don't do a lot of loyalty well. We are a bejeweled dumpster in many different ways. Dan Lebitard speaks with our own Zach Harper about that. Plus, Dave DeFore and Tim Cato on how the heat turned heel and America rallied behind the Dallas Mavericks. When the Dallas Mavericks beat the Miami Heat in 2011, the franchise's first championship, they were seen as likable underdogs. But there was more to it than that. The stakes of that series were morality. Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers.